Hey everybody, Matt Camp here with Deal Machine. Uh, we're proud to team up with Tom Zeeb here to give you guys a ton of free stuff. So our goal here is to give you the free toolkit to get out there and start finding off-market deals. Um, we're proud to say we're the highest rated and most reviewed app out there to go find off-market deals. And we've had over 10,000 deals done using the Deal Machine app. Now, when you download it, you can get it for free at tomzeeb.com slash dealmachine, and you'll get a seven-day free trial with that. And jumping into Deal Machine, you'll be able to go out there, start driving for dollars, start pulling lists, start finding the most motivated sellers in your market. And then you can start marketing to them directly. You can skip trace, you can send them postcards, you can knock on their door. There's a variety of things that we can help you out with using our technology. And then from there, you can actually evaluate the deals, You know, comp it, use our AI assistant to help you out there as well. You really get the full toolkit to go from you know having no real estate experience to landing your first deal using technology. So it's tomzeebcom slash deal machine for that free trial. With it, if you go through that link, you're going to get $30 free in marketing credits that cover a couple hundred free skip traces or 50 free postcards, give you everything that you need to start reaching out to sellers. So um, get out there and happy deal finding. I mean, you can't stop marketing no matter what you do. I think your course teaches that. Be consistent with your marketing because when you take your eye off of the marketing piece because you have a deal that you're trying to work, you're going to be maybe two months before your next deal. So that's really, really, really important. Welcome to the Get Traction Podcast. If you are ready to learn exactly what it takes to become a real estate entrepreneur, this is the show for you. With your host, founder of Traction Real Estate Mentors and president of the Traction Real Estate Investors Association, Tom Z. David McGrady, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good, Tom. Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks for being here. Tell us who you are, where you're located, what kind of real estate investing you're doing. Sure. David McGrady. I work in uh, North Carolina in the triad region. We do a little bit of wholesale, rentals, fix and flip, and also did my first note last year. So a little bit of everything. Nice. How long have you been a real estate investor down there? A little over two years. I started with Tom's program right at a year and a half ago. Yeah. Let's think back. What were those first few months like? And then what changed after you got into my program? So I think the structure is really the most important part. And part of what Tom's program teaches is making offers. And if you get away from that, you're going to not get deals. It's really that simple. You, you got to continue making offers and continue making offers. And uh, the structure behind Tom's program to get you there, three offers a week, three offers a week. And quite frankly, I've dropped the ball sometimes with that. But if you're consistent and can stick within that structure, you will have success. Um, one that I have under contract right now was another, you just write out the offers and they call you back and they accept it. So that's really the structure, the consistency that Tom's program hones you in on. The postcards are there for you already. Uh, just send out postcards, make offers, use his, I was using his deal worksheet this morning with three calls that I had. So, you know, it's really just following the, the steps and you will be successful. That's cool. So you've gotten kind of the, having a structure and a path of follows really helped you stay focused and keep moving. Absolutely. And make sure you're doing things right down the eyes, crossing the teeth. It's cool. David, what got you into real estate investing? Finding a way to uh, have financial freedom is by far my number one goal. That is something that 
as an at-will employee, I have no control over my job. And to be able to take control is something that I'd like to have in the future. And that drew you into real estate investing. And are you, do you still have your at-will uh, full-time job? Absolutely. Yeah. It helps finance uh, rental homes. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. so we'll continue to do that until we have a nice portfolio or a big enough business that we could walk away from. Gotcha. So you're building up. I don't always like the term side hustle, but a lot of people call it that, right? You build you build something up on the side, but you still have your day job. And then there's a point where you'll make a decision, oh, I, maybe I can leave the day job and carry on. But right now you're using the benefits of the day job to keep being able to buy more properties. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that a lot of time? I mean, how do you find the time in the day, David? I think you find the time for what you want to spend on. So if it's important to you, you'll find time. And everyone's going to spend a different amount of time. You know, it's not hard to find three, four, five properties and make offers on each week. You could do for sale by owners. You could send out your postcards. You can just not a ton of time that you have to commit. And once you are organized enough, I think you will be successful at it. It does take a little bit longer in the beginning for sure. And I'm still learning too. Each market requires you to really do some due diligence and figure out what it's selling for and who your buyers are and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean it's going to take eight hours a day. You can really put the time into it that you want to put in and see results. Gotcha. Now, the have you had to cut anything out? I mean, you still have the day job, you have a family. You know, did you say, hey, look, I'm going to cut an hour of TV out or I'm going to cut an hour of whatever out? Is there, did you find having yourself having to do that? Sure. A lot of it was just uh, wasted time, TV time or whatever it was, just, you know, refocused on what's prioritizing, what's important. And um, to me right now, and that's, you know, spending time in the business to grow, learn and develop it. But if you can make just a little bit of time, I think, you know, any amount of time is, is good. I mean, even if you have to start with 30 minutes a day, that's OK. What do you think you spend? Per, per day or per week focused on real estate investing? Yeah, so I spend a good amount each week just with the way our business is, probably 15 plus hours a week, maybe 20. Okay. And with rental, with our rental houses, if we're doing a turn, I'll do a lot of the work myself. So my time is probably going to be a little bit higher than what you would have if you were just wholesaling, quite a bit higher. But it's just about which what you're interested in, what you want to do, because one flip could be four, five, six wholesales. So where do you want to put your time and effort into what interests you? And if wholesale is just what you want to do, you will not. I mean, you're going to spend some time finding that. Well, you, you might not. You might get a contract on your very first call. It just if there's a motivated seller and you hit them at the right time, it could happen instantly. Yeah. Hitting those motivated sellers at the right time is what tends to frustrate a lot of people because sometimes they feel like it's never going to be the right time. What have you found that brings you motivated sellers on a consistent basis? It's follow-up. We have a we just track all of our leads and have a, an automatic follow-up. You know, we go back and review our, our deals that we missed. Why did we miss them? A lot of that has to do with timing. One that I was looking at last week sold to another investor 
and we'd missed the follow-up by like three weeks. We contacted wow. them all in 528 and she had signed documents 6-4. So the timing just wasn't, she signed in between the three-week follow-up yeah. period that we had. Now, everything leading up to that was I'm going to sell it to the tenants. I'm going to sell it to the tenants. I'm going to sell it to the tenants. And we had four months of follow-up every three to four weeks. Nope, I'm working with the lawyer. I'm going to sell it to the tenants. I'm going to sell it to the tenants. And then all of a sudden it snapped and she went quickly. So I don't know what I'm going to do differently because I feel like our follow-up every three to four weeks was pretty solid because two weeks I felt was a little too much follow-up. So you know, some of those deals will fall through, but uh, right place, right time, just consistent follow-up, I think will be key in your pipeline. Gotcha. It's interesting there. It might've, your conversations with her might've triggered her and pushed her to do something different, you know, to finally make a move and sell. And then she wound up making another move by the time your follow-up cycle came back around, but you win some, you lose some. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are the, those are nice ones too. Some of the big ones that we've missed on have had great results for the, for the next buyer. So it's just continuing to plug away until we get the big ones. I mean, there's a lot of, for in our market, at least it's very tight. So a lot of houses that should not go to realtors are going to realtors and still selling. So it's a very interesting dynamic in our market right now with what's in play. And hopefully we can, have some loosening up where we find some more motivated motivated sellers that need to sell through us instead of being able to take a house that hasn't been updated in 40 years to market and still getting market price or, or better. Okay. So the competitiveness of the market, when you said that houses that shouldn't go to listing with realtors are actually still going to listing and selling because they're not in good enough shape and yet people buy them anyway. Yep. Okay. So the market's tight and yet you still find deals because you are? Consistently following up and marketing. I mean, you can't stop marketing no matter what you do. I think your course teaches that. Be consistent with your marketing because when you take your eye off of the marketing piece because you have a deal that you're trying to work, you're going to be maybe two months before your next deal. So that's really, really, really important that even... I struggle with, quite frankly, with trying to make sure that, you know, mailings go out on time. You're always keeping your pipeline. Where is it at? Where you're, you know, following up with them? Because if you miss one or two steps, you, you could be dry for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And to avoid the dry spell and you got to keep it raining, you got to keep, you got to keep water in the pipeline, which yep. is marketing leads going through it. I like, you know, the fact that you're thinking about it properly as a pipeline. A lot of people just go, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to spray some marketing out there right now. I'm going to, and then it winds up being, hey, I'll do a little bit of postcards, but I'll never follow up. I'll do some letters, but I'll never follow up. I'll run an ad, but I'll never follow up. There's never any follow-up. So that's not a funnel. That's just a bunch of random things you did throwing, throwing you know what at a wall to see what sticks. Yeah. And it's like you, you taught in your class. It's not just sending a postcard out once. You know, We're on our fifth and sixth time reaching out to them. And it does, they still continue to call in after the fourth, fifth, sixth time. So I definitely encourage multiple touch points with the same contact. They will let you know if they don't want to be contacted again. Just take them off the list. <laughs> Those are the nasty phone calls and you right. deal with them. 
Do you get a lot of nasty phone calls? Do and how do we you get our them? fair share? I think we probably get our fair share, but who knows what made them have a bad day? So it's just take them off the list and move forward. Like just respect their wishes and move forward. That's all I could. That's all I can ask for. And some people just there's a lot of postcards going out to them. We hear that quite a bit. Every phone call I made today, you know, they get touched a lot. They get, you know, multiple appointments that go on. Multiple people are there same day. So mm-hmm. competition's out there, but that doesn't mean you still can't find deals. And another thing that Tom teaches is the negotiation piece and building rapport and building relationship. I know it's hard to believe, but that negotiation piece is, I think, one of the most crucial parts to being successful. Tell me more about that. Like, what changed when you started studying negotiation with me? After you've you sort of laid it out in the, the workshop, I've never not stopped studying it. You know, it's like I'm addicted to never split the difference right now. And it works in so many different aspects of your life, uh, from family to business to real estate. And negotiation will take, will be able to take conversations into, you will be able to better communicate with your seller if you learn a few key gambits or different tactics. And they don't always have to be, you know, what you think of a used car salesman. These are just each human has is very emotional and being able to package it correctly and how to communicate to them is very, very important in order to get the end results that is going to be beneficial to both of you. Because if you're too high on a contract and you fall out, that hurts them. If you're too low and you never get consideration, uh, that hurts you. So finding that middle ground where you're both are successful or a win-win I think is really important. See, that's interesting because so many people say, oh, win-win, it sounds kind of cheesy and it sounds, you know, pie in the sky. But if you think about it, you're not, you're not the sleazy salesman, which a lot of people, right, tend to, they blend negotiations into that. Not the sleazy salesman trying to force somebody to say yes. You're presenting an offer and constructing a solution that makes them want to say yes to it because then they win. But then we also win because this is a, we're only making an offer that works for us. And so you literally can make the two sides win. The, the key is not to be negotiating for the exact same thing, which is, you know, don't be fighting about price. The price is important to us as investors, but usually a motivated seller, they're motivated by something other than just the price. And if we solve that problem, that's when we get our good deals. Yeah. A lot of times it's, I think the out-of-state owner list has been my last three deals. So (laughs) that's, I mean, it's a lot to take care of a property a few states away. So listening, you know, Tom's got a full list of lists that he hits. And I think paying attention to those is really important. And something that I've got to do a better job of is just managing costs, right? You can go out there and just spend, spend, spend in real estate but really making sure that your ROI is correct for what you're doing and grow correctly is super important. What have you found that, what is it that you're aiming to tweak? What have you found has been the issue? I think with postcards, try different ones, figure out which ones work, which one's not working. I'm not really seeing a huge difference in a more expensive postcard or a letter versus a just simple 
really lightweight postcard. So that's sort of the cost that I think I can help take out of our uh, marketing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of systems that we have in place, you know, do we need them? Uh, I'm really doing the analysis to make sure that what we're spending on is where we should be spending. Gotcha. So you're not finding, you know, a super pretty, wonderful design of a postcard makes a difference versus kind of a plain old ugly postcard with just some text on it. Yeah, I haven't found, I think we've had one that has done extremely well and that could, you know, we haven't been able to repeat that success. So even with that one. So I'm not seeing a huge difference in postcards. You know, I've talked to quite a few postcard companies who use two different ones, or we have tried two different ones. And they keep saying, throwing out different metrics. And my metric is always about half of a percent. One percent is a great return. Uh, But we're seeing about a half of a percent consistently. All right. That's see. There's nothing wrong with that. And so if people aren't quite sure what you're saying, the the percent of people who respond to a mailing, uh, you expect about half a percent to one and a half percent is kind of across all industries in marketing. So 1% is average. You're you're at a half a percent, which you're finding to be your average. That's great. Get half a percent of what you send out will respond. Now, it doesn't mean they're all deals. Those are responses. And then you work through those responses to find the ones that are deals. Yeah, and I think putting them in your pipeline, right? Because yep. they might not be a deal today. And a lot of the deals that we worked on in January and February are coming through now with more interest, the consistent follow-up, because there is a pain point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have called you. Yep. They're either they're thinking about it or something in their life has changed. So um, not being pushy, not calling them every week or every three days, but calling them for us works every three to four weeks or texting or whatever it is that your follow-up method is to keep them active and engaged in your pipeline. Because just like the deal that we lost a few weeks ago, there's going to be a flip of a switch because once they commit to you, that contract gets signed fairly quickly. Fast. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's just, you just got to be following up correctly. Gotcha. So they're committing to you at some point through the negotiation process which, you know, I stress a lot of the negotiation process actually builds rapport with the other party and they get to know you, they trust you, they like you, right? There's no other option after a while because there's something more, there's something more professional about you by the fact that you're negotiating correctly. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, I think the trust is a big part. They trust that you're going to be able to fulfill what you're saying. And the other big thing for us has been multiple offers, not just a cash offer, because that is an easy yes or no, but having multiple, you know, you teach this too, whether it's a lease option, whether it's seller finance, whatever it may be, those are the types of offers you should always make because you never know. We have a fairly good idea going into our initial offer that they're going to say no to most of them. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I was surprised on our last one. Uh, they did seller finance. So, and that's great. So, you know, always have those options um, that you can send out. And it's, it's fairly simple. I mean, you know, a mortgage calculator online and you can get seller financing very quickly. And, you know, that might put you into owning a rental property before you thought you could. Some things are more important, especially if they don't have right now the interest rate environment and the banks are very low. And if you're offering them 
three and a half percent, even four, they're excited. I mean, that's could be quadruple what they could get if they're literally going to let it sit in the bank and then, you know, tell them to go talk to their accountant because their accountant could tell them, yes, that's a fairly good deal because you're not going to get hit with a ton of taxes this year. As well. So you, again, find out the benefit to them, spin it to them, make sure you put a sharp enough points so they understand that there's the benefit of them doing it that way. Yeah. It's all about them, right? If, if yeah. you can help them, truly help them find a solution to whatever is their pain point, I think you will be very successful. And then they want to say yes. It's interesting. The I don't want anyone being scared. Oh, well, if I make these other offers and the person says yes, and they want that offer. What if I don't want to own the property? What if I'm not ready to own the property? Well, you can still make those offers. If they say yes to a, a financed offer, you can still wholesale that. You're not the one that has to buy, but like you say, if you want to get, maybe you can get in earlier than you thought. And if you can't or don't want to, you can still accept the offer and wholesale it because there's plenty of buyers that were other investors that would buy it and happily have an owner finance deal ready to go for them. You know, I think that's a really good point is fear does hold you back. And if you just make the commitment to make offers, at the end of the day, you have escape clauses for a reason in any contract. Uh, with real estate. And that's if you go through a realtor too, there's an inspection period. So, you know, you might lose your money with that contract, but there's other, you know, if you use the correct contracts that Tom has, you don't. So get over the fear of just afraid to make an offer. Wonder if I'm too high. Okay. Well, your buyers will let you know very quickly. They won't call. So what are your options? Well, your options are to go back and renegotiate or to cancel the contract and just be very honest with them. Hey, I thought that's what I could buy that. I'm sorry, I cannot. And that's okay because, you know, every real estate deal, big, small. I mean, I've worked on some commercial real estate deals. There's a ton of canceled contracts out there. You think hedge funds aren't afraid to pull back? One of the hedge funds that works here in Winston, they got pulled, you know, when COVID happened, they pulled back hard and they took a huge million, million, million dollar penalty rather than buy the huge portfolio but they still canceled it. So don't be afraid of failure because it's, uh, you know, don't be afraid. That's interesting because so you're finding that you can bail out of a contract. You can always say no later on and just cancel out, press the eject button, get out, you're safe. And therefore you're moving ahead fearlessly. Yeah, you have to. I mean, don't don't let fear hold you back. It's, uh, it will. I'm sure, you know, even I deal with that every day. It's not, I'm not perfect, but you have the systems and the mentors and the people in place around you. I still ask for help all the time from people I've met in real estate, buyers that haven't bought from me, but I'll call them and say, hey, can you look at this deal? What am I missing? Or can you come to the house and I've got it under contract and just tell me your thoughts on you know, rehab? Because rehab is, is tough to estimate, uh, especially now. Yeah. So, and they're happy. Most of them are happy to do it. Most of them are very grateful with their time, especially if you're really trying to work hard and grow in the industry. I've had very few that are just like, nope, not going to help. But for the majority of them, they're just good people that I found. And, you know, they do you a favor now and take a look at it, which is potentially doing themselves a favor because if they like it, they could buy it from you. Yeah. But they're also building that relationship. So you get to know your buyers very good. And now you've got, you know, obvious people that you send it to. So they've taught you how to tighten up your idea of repair estimate. At the same time, you're building the relationship and they're more likely to get deals from you. 
and that saves them time and money. Yep. Yeah, it works for both sides for sure, but it definitely helps us. Don't be afraid to call on them. That's what I found. If they say no, that's just fine too. Just keep calling because there are people out there uh, like Tom and other people that are, they really do care and they want to help the people that are out for the right reasons that are not just, you know, trying to go out with low ball offers all the time and, and not doing the work, doing the, you know, wholesale is work. It's not a get rich quick. You do have to put in quite a bit of work and I think you will see the benefits. How much work do you have to put in? Let's talk kind of time and work on your average deal. Let's say your average wholesale deal. What, how much time and effort are you putting in? I would say with what we're currently doing, we're probably putting in 15 to 20 hours in a deal with the going all the way back to your initial marketing, pulling the list, uh, calling the list, mailing the list, following up. So yeah, I would say that's probably a fair estimate and then showing the house and doing the work at the legal firms, contracts, back and forth. So 15, 20 hours per deal would probably be fair. Some are a lot less um, if they're super motivated and you know, you gave a story where they just wanted out and yeah. they their price was underneath your price that you could pay and you know, those could move very quickly. Those could be a few hours, but for us, it'd be a little bit more on, especially in this, I guess this year is what I'm talking about. This market, I've had some deals go much faster than that, but this market has been challenging. Gotcha. Okay. So 15 hours on average, sometimes faster, sometimes a little slower on average, 15 hours. And the return you're getting on 15 hours of work, is it... You know, is it getting, uh, you know, is it a month's pay? Is it kind of a full annual salary? What are you happy with the return? What kind of returns you get? Yeah, we're happy with the returns right now. Again, we're still growing. I would say your average deal is somewhere between five and 10. Mm-hmm. So for some that's a, a month's salary or whatever it might be for you, those are the, I would say, consistent ones. We have not hit a home run. I know some of your students have hit big numbers. We have not done that yet, but, you know, I keep, keep telling myself one deal can change everything. Yeah, it's coming. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those. It also depends where you are. So you're in North Carolina, you're finding five to 10,000 on a wholesale to be about right. You know, if you were in San Francisco, those numbers would change radically. If you're in Washington, D.C., they change radically. You know, all the parts of the country, it's about average. I find just shy of 10 grand, about 9,600 to be average. Yeah. Um, it, but it totally depends on the overall values in your area. I think the important thing is to focus on how many do you need to do in a given area to be happy. So I usually go with, let's take 10 grand and multiply it out from there. When you hit the home runs and you make a, you know, a 15, a 20, a 25, a $30,000 break. And then when you hit the base hits, you know, you win games from base hits. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, again, consistency and sticking to your marketing plan because it's really I think there's more and more competition, at least from what we've seen in our market, that are driving prices higher than what, for example, ARVs. You know, everyone knows the formula. So the ARVs that some of the bigger wholesalers are that are moving in that have traditionally been in the larger MSA markets, they're up to 85 now. So adjusting your offers and figuring out your market, I think it's going to be key. 
you know, if you're just traditional 75 minus repairs minus your fee, you might lose more. So figuring out where your market is, and that's working with your buyers and calling them and asking them where they're buying at. A lot of the really good buyers around here are still buying 75 minus repair. A lot of the ones that are having to do deals are buying a little bit higher and taking skinnier margins on their end. I mean, we I've worked with a, a flipper that was taking less than 15 on a flip. So scary to me, it was way too tight, but you know, <laughs> you know he's got money that he's got to use or he's still got to pay, pay on it. So yeah. those are the types of find out what your buyers are, you know, buying it. Are they buying it 85 yeah. minus repairs, 75 minus repairs? Where's your market? I do think that will change in the near future. I think that's a great point because some people criticize the 70% rule. It doesn't work. It should be thrown out the window. I think the thing is, I think you should use it to analyze where things are at and to be able to move quickly. The, what changes is that it doesn't have to be 70%. And you're talking 75%. Some people do an 85 But you interview your buyers and see where they're at and adjust that number to be appropriate. Because that's still basically going to make it happen. Rather than sit there and have to, you know, get really kind of detailed with every single lead, you'll burn yourself out because you're going to slow yourself down. So to keep the speed going, just use the 70% rule and adjust 70 to whatever it needs to be. If that's 75, 80, 85, uh, sometimes lower, sometimes higher. So you're doing the right thing by asking your buyers, how are they buying? And then you know how to serve deals to them because you know how they're buying. Yeah. And the ARV on the top right now is so, it's just crazy. So, I mean, we've, one of the houses that we bid on and lost on, they got full, I mean, we would have never gone that high no matter what. I mean, I talked to multiple buyers that have, that do flips, many, many flips every year and they wouldn't touch it, but someone did. And uh, that was 40 grand over what we offered. Mm -hmm. Great area, great neighborhood don't see the plan, but someone had a plan. So that's... Ah, but yeah. just because they had a plan doesn't mean the plan worked. So that's hey, always the weird thing. Is oh, I'm going to track it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, see what happens. Maybe it worked. A lot of times it doesn't, or people just kept themselves busy, or you go, wow, that was a lot of risk for a very little reward margin. And that is, that's something to consider too. I like to tell people you kind of put some blinders on to competition. You've got to do what you know how to do best and don't, don't view it as, don't view it as a competition with somebody else. Because then you, you wind up, you're going to wind up violating your rules and losing money. And that doesn't make any sense. I really do enjoy going back and seeing what people paid for it and then seeing what they sold for. It helps me tremendously to see where different zip codes are with where they're buying, where, you know, a lot of the really good ones. I mean, you can do this by pulling permits and seeing who's actually pulling permits to do a full rehab, stuff like that. So you're right. There's enough deals out there for everyone, but really seeing what can be done. Like one of the most successful guys here that I know is buying around, believe it or not, 50% ARV. And he is consistently, I don't know. He consistently buys there. I've tracked, I don't know, 15, 20 of his houses over the past two years. And he is consistently buying about 50% ARV. By the time he sells it, he's getting about double what he bought into it. Now he's doing full rehabs and a lot of stuff to him. Don't, yep. don't, don't think that he's not, but yeah, he's, that was, it's really interesting to see that. 
Yeah, it's and it's a lesson that a lot of times people don't think they can get anyone any lower. You can't get that motivated seller any lower. Push a little bit more. You'd be surprised a lot of times they do go lower. Yeah. And that's so there's a lot of times people leave uh, leave money on the table, so to speak. David, what's been your craziest motivated seller so far? What there's usually good stories in real estate investing. So I'm curious what you've come up against. So we mailed to a a code violation and took down a house that had probably the worst living conditions I've ever seen. And they were just crazy. It was a the tenants didn't want to move, even though half the windows in the house were broken. <laughs> and they just refused to pay rent. And the owner of the house wanted it gone. And that was probably the craziest one I've ever had to figure out because our lawyer pretty much told us, do not buy it with tenants in there. If you buy it with tenants in there, you're in trouble because then you're liable for everything. So they need to move before you can proceed with the contract. And that was interesting doing cash for keys, getting them out and then purchasing the house. <laughs> yeah. It all worked out well. Though. It did. Yeah, no, it was, that was the, we ended up, Starting the rehab, found someone that wanted to finish the rehab. I held a note for about six months and, you know, which was great. So different, learned something new, different. Um, and now the we bought the house for 10000 and they should sell it for 120 when the rehab's done. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. When one, um, think back to, was about 18 months, a year and a half ago when you started what were your number one hangups? Like what was stopping you from wanting to get moving? Consistency. And also, I think, you know, finding that mentorship is super important. I think it's something that's really understated. But finding a good mentor that will continue to push you to call when you have issues, to get through hangups, I think that would be the biggest things. Gotcha. So that was kind of, that blew out the roadblocks and let you move ahead quickly? Yep. That's good. And there's still roadblocks to this day. <laughs> there's always a roadblock. There's always the next, this is the thing, there's always the next level, like you do what it takes today and then you hit another roadblock. Then you work again that one out of the way and then you advance ahead and then surprise, surprise, there's another roadblock. Right. Yeah, that's what we have to manage as as investors, as entrepreneurs, it takes it takes a little something. How are you finding managing that? Because entrepreneurial is a it's a different lifestyle than a nine to five. How are you finding the adjustment? You know, it's funny you say that. It is incredibly difficult, and when you want to quit, you cannot. And it's easy to press the eject button, but you you can't. And you know, you have to continue digging and digging and digging to continue pushing forward because there's going to be a lot of challenges and a lot of things outside of your control. And Tom goes over it in his course, but uh, you're going to have drama at the beginning or at the end, or in a lot of our situations throughout the entire deal. <laughs> so being able to not give up. Not give up. Yeah, don't quit. Don't give in to the, the drama. In fact, expect it. That's my training on drama is always there's, there's drama early or there's drama late, but there's absolutely always drama in every deal. So don't be upset when it comes. In fact, in many ways, be happy if it comes, because when the drama comes early, it usually winds up being smooth sailing to the end. 
On the other hand, if everything's falling into place and the deal's going so well, <laughs> you've got to be afraid. Be very afraid because right. it's going to be a wild finish. Absolutely. So just don't give up. Even I tell myself that all the time because there's entrepreneurship is, at least from what I've experienced, extremely tough, but extremely rewarding if you can if you battle through it and not and believe in yourself and not give up. Yeah. Is that like that's not taught in school, is it? Believe in yourself. I mean, you know, I guess sports bring it out a little bit, but that like believe in yourself. You can be an entrepreneur. You can do this, make it happen. So it's almost like the deck is stacked against us. What else have you done to, uh, you know, you said coaching and focus. What else do you do to, to filter out all that noise so that you can move ahead with what you want to do? I think reading is something in, you know, in school they teach you one mindset and that's to really, you know, go into a job and find your way through the job ladder or the job market. And entrepreneurship is something completely different. So reading a lot of books and I think that really opened my mind up when I started reading a ton to, you know, negotiation books, business books, real estate books, whatever you can get your hands on. And you don't have to be thorough, just, you know, really find the points that matter to you and get through it. Tom, you've got a book. Those are the types of things that open my eyes to a world that is completely different. And then the other thing is finding entrepreneurs in your community that you can talk to because their mindset is completely different. It's stunning. It's truly stunning when you start expanding your circle from just the people that are in the cubicle next to you to true entrepreneurs that are making decisions every day that could impact their life tomorrow or a year from now or three years from now. And that could be putting a ton of capital into something that's not promised. And just the way that they think and the way that they do things is, you know, completely different than what you've ever been taught. What have you done to find those people since they're not generally sitting next to you in a cubicle? Yeah. I mean, your RIA meetings are fantastic. A lot of the investors have other businesses. A lot of them are not just buying houses or flipping houses. A lot of them have anything from construction business to roofing businesses to business you wouldn't even imagine. Yeah, they're proud of their accomplishments. They want to discuss it. And I think that's almost an entrepreneurial thing. Not just It's not that they're bragging. It's just nice to talk about it because so few people understand. So I find that other entrepreneurs, particularly if they're more senior than you, they want to talk. It's almost very natural then to kind of take you under their wing and and help you on your journey because that's exciting to them because they remember what it was like. Yep. And they've got great stories. I mean, it's fantastic hearing all the different things that they do. And it's amazing, truly amazing how many different ways in this world that you can make money. And it is incredibly rewarding to hear some of their, you know, going from very little to quite a bit. And uh, it's fun to hear those. Gotcha. No, I feel... Absolutely the same way. So let's track back a little bit to negotiation. What? Because a lot of people struggle with negotiation because it, it feels, we commented on, you know, you had said, I said about, it feels like sales and people don't like sales. No one likes being sold to. Of course, everyone likes to buy, but no one likes being sold right. to. So the negotiation isn't just sales. There's a whole, there's a psychology of it. There's techniques of it. There's gambits, which are the, the maneuvers you make. 
what are some of the biggest things that have changed for you? Because you're saying how much it's improved your business. So well, like, what are some specific things you've done that have really improved you as a negotiator? So the gambits you teach are fantastic. They get you in the door. They uh, help you learn the basics. But then diving deeper, I think listening, I know is not viewed as like a true negotiation technique, but if you truly listen, <laughs> your next statement can have, will help that seller realize that you're listening to them and will draw a connection closer to you, which in my mind helps your negotiation because and not just thinking about what you're going to say next, but literally listening. And, you know, I'm okay saying, just give me a second. Let me process this or write down what you were saying, because what they say will give you insights or black swans or whatever you want to call them into what's truly motivating them. And it could be something very small that they didn't realize they said that then you can parlay into your negotiation later on or in the next statement that you make. I know it's weird to say, but I think listening in negotiations is probably the biggest thing because if you can find those one or two little nuggets, then you can apply that and solve their problem. If it's the tenants not paying or if the they want to get rid of it because they're getting too many calls or whatever it was. Like each one of the phone calls I've had today and in the past, if you can just find one or two little nuggets that you could potentially help them, I think that's uh, important. It makes a difference. So listen, when you're talking to people, you pause sometimes, listen to what they're saying, which gives you time to contemplate it. Yep. And I think it's also interesting that you're saying, sometimes you just ask, you tell them, give me a moment. There's no expectation that the moment they stop, you have to start talking. You can think about it. And I think that shows thoughtfulness as well. So they're, they're going, he's really thinking about what I said. And then when you come up with the answer, when you do start to speak again, they're almost more willing to accept what you have to say because you thought about it. I think so. I mean, there's a reason they're talking to you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are not going to give you, some people will, some people will just tell you the exact reason that they're, but some people it takes a little bit of time to open up. And if you truly, truly listen, and this isn't just in real estate. I use this in my job, my W-2 job. I use this in my family life. Like this is key. Like, and I'm not like, I think they call it active listening. Mm -hmm. Seriously listening to what they're saying is so important. And, and if you can record your calls and listen to them again, I think that's the next step. Yeah. Yeah. When I, recommend that to students. There's, there's always a cringe because nobody likes hearing the sound of their own voice <laughs> recording. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, I hate it too. I absolutely hate it. But it's funny to hear phrases and statements that you said that you're like, yeah, I probably should have said it a little bit different. <laughs> um, but hey, you can get better because, you know, that's like you said at, at the very beginning, this is all about growing and developing and, and moving forward. It's not going to be entrepreneurship is not a cakewalk for everyone because if it was, everyone would be doing it. That is very true. It takes effort. It takes focus, it takes time. It takes work, which is the, I think the current four letter word that most people don't want to utter. <laughs> things take work and time, but with the recordings, like recording yourself, talking to somebody, if you want to work out any sort of, speech impediment, or if you tend to say like too much or um, 
too much. I still catch myself doing it sometimes, but I always go back and listen to my recordings and uh, what can I improve here? Or sometimes I'll cringe because I realized I spoke over somebody when I should have been listening to them because they weren't done yet. Just because I tend to be a fast talker. I know that. So I got to slow down sometimes. It's extra effort on my part to slow down. But if I'm too anxious to jump in and finish their sentence, well, then I'm just projecting what I want to say onto them. I don't, which doesn't matter. I need to hear what they were going to say. And that's a matter of me holding back a bit. Absolutely. And I, I catch myself doing that too. I'd like to to jump in sometimes. And a lot of times with the sellers that you're talking to, they need time to think and they need, it's a huge emotional decision. The contract that we're working on right now was her grandmother's or great grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. And it is a, it was a month long decision to sign our contract, gave her space, gave her time to follow it up respectfully. And she signed. And that's just, you know, (laughs) yes. Did I want to jump in every two seconds? Yeah. Let's, you know, but you know, not speaking over someone is tough for me. It absolutely is tough for me, but you're right. Just give them time to continue talking. It's respectful, basically. And I'm not sure anyone would necessarily put that label on it right at the beginning, but subconsciously they're thinking, hey, you know, this guy, this gal is respecting me because they're not pushy. They're not leading me in the wrong direction. They're, they let me speak. And so much of rapport building is just the fact, not that you've been saying anything, is that they've been saying things to you and they feel more comfortable with you because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, like, especially if you're mirroring what they're saying to. I think that's something that repeating back what they said to make sure that you're interpreting it correctly is very important to build that rapport. And every conversation is different. I know this is just, you know, Ideally, you would hit all your negotiating gambits and your tactics and everything would flow nice and neat. But just remember, some of these calls are probably 10, 12 different conversations yeah. before we get to a, a what we would consider uh, the next step. Some people are ready to sell. Some people, it takes a while. So be there, be there for them when it's needed. You know, David, I'm quite sure I'll make a uh, controversial comment. I'm quite sure most female listeners right now are nodding going, that's a great guy. He knows he's got to listen. And then a bunch of our uh, fellow male listeners are going, what's he talking about? (laughs) Big difference. I mean, that's the negotiation books that I'm reading. It's just all about listening. And it's, uh, like I said, if you can just catch one or two little statements could change the course of your entire transaction, your entire working relationship with them, because it's something that they might not consciously think of that's important, but it is. And they somehow let it go in a way that you can catch it. That's yeah. Yeah, It's important. What else have you done to, build rapport with your motivated sellers and and move them from no to yes? I think one of the most powerful statements that we're using right now is I might not be the right solution for you, but I will tell you everything that I know to get you there. And that has been incredibly successful with us moving forward in conversations that wouldn't typically get told no. 
I'm not interested in selling because then it puts the onus on them to say, oh, well, I don't know if a lot of people are using that, but it has been successful for us. And I truly do want to help people. Um, It's not some deals. And I I, I will flatly tell them and refer them to our realtor. You are not for us. (laughs) Uh, Your house is in retail ready shape. This is who you should talk to. And I would be happy to put you in contact with them. And I think that they appreciate that. And then some of the conversations are the opposite. Uh, one of the houses we went to visit was in ARV, probably 115, 120 top of market, completely burned out. Water, standing water up to your ankles throughout most of the house, no roof on it the amount of structural damage, the amount of everything else that would have to be done to it. I mean, we're talking 90 plus grand in rehab. It's having the hard conversation with her that, hey, we'll find, I can go out and talk to other investors. I don't know if we will find a solution for you. And unfortunately that solution might be giving the home up because there's not much to do. And yeah, so, but at least they have options. I'm sure it's a value to someone at some price, maybe 500 bucks. But my (laughs) goodness, I mean, the city has locked the meter. There's a lot of things that you'd have to get through to. So, yeah, you're going to have different sides and just trying to help, literally just trying to help people. That's all we're, you know, it might not be for us, but maybe we can find someone that will be for. It's interesting because that in itself builds rapport, but there's also there's like a deeper psychological thing going on. You're not coming in saying, I am your only solution. There's nowhere else to go, which people mentally immediately start fighting against. So it's you know, like you're pushing on them, they're going to push back. Rather, you're coming in saying, well, let's see, maybe there's other options. Let me tell you what those are, which it also shows quite a bit of confidence because you're not afraid of them going elsewhere if it makes more sense. And in many ways, it starts to make your offer more and more acceptable, believable, because he's saying there's other options and he's walked me through the process and I understand it all more. And you're deepening that comfort level with you and taking your offer rather because you're not, you're not trying to claim you're the only thing out there. You know, I've never thought of it quite like that, but you're, that's exactly what happened to us on our last contract. It was, she was like, well, I'm going to go out and, find, and talk to other people. I said, please do. I'm going to send you our list of options and offers that you can consider and then you, you go make your, your choice, but you do have options. And that's what, if they do have options, I would flatly tell them because it's okay. You know, you do have options, especially there's a lot of houses here. And I'm not sure in, in your market, but there's a tremendous amount of houses that are fully paid for. Yes. And to me, you're wide open, all kinds of different things that you can do whether it's wraps or lease options, seller finance. So there's just a ton of different options that you can present to them. And instead of a, like I said at the very beginning, it's not just a yes or a no with a cash offer. You're really giving them a ton of different choices that will fit best for them. Now, most of the time we know which way they're going to go, but sometimes they surprise you. Yeah. Always be open because they, they might surprise you. And that I think, we're talking a little psychology out of the, the reason I always tell my students in my trainings, 
you don't want to just make one offer because like you said before, then the answer is yes or no. When you make two offers or more, now they're tending to compare between the offers. They're thinking A or B or A or B or C. They tend to forget. They could still say no. No is always that, that other option. But rather than just yes or no, they now start thinking A or B or, you know, or A, B, C. And no doesn't come to mind as quickly. So debating the options, you're subtly telling them that are you flexible on price or are you flexible on terms? If you're flexible on price, go ahead, take my all cash offer. If you're flexible on terms, then take one of my other offers. Uh, if they're not flexible on either one, then I need to refer you elsewhere because you're not the right person for me. Yeah, and I had a seller uh, for the house that we just bought. He said, the reason I went with you is because you presented multiple options to me and that you were you sounded more competent than I don't know if he used the word competent. He used a word, whatever you want to describe it, that you presented me multiple options. And yeah. I th obviously for him, that was the difference because our, our price was the same. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that interesting? You showed him there's other ways out. There's other ways of doing this. Yeah. It is. It's confidence. It's polite. It's right. It just, it works in so many different layers and so many different levels. Even I find that we have sellers that they'll go away, but then they'll come back. Who do they come back to? They come back to me. They come back to my students because they were given other options. No one else gave money and other options. But when they have a chance to breathe and think about who they want to sell to, they go, you know what? That guy was right from the beginning and he made me multiple offers. And I appreciate it. No one else even mentioned that. So I appreciate that more. Let's call him back. And then they call and you got the deal. Yeah, multiple. I mean, that's been our strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Always, always make multiple offers. Yeah. You had also mentioned how many properties are free and clear. David, the number usually shocks and surprises people. Because if you look it up for your area, it's usually between a fourth and a third. So 25% to 33% of properties are owned outright. They're free and clear. There's no mortgage. Yeah. So if there's no mortgage, the people can take any offer you make. It's a matter of will they? And that's where the negotiation comes in. You convince them to take it. Absolutely. It, it's truly shocking the number of houses that we work on that are free and clear. And I mean, inheritance, whatever it may be. And it just opens up your world to so many different solutions that uh, more than likely are beneficial to the, the seller as well. I mean, a lot of them don't realize they're going to get hit with a pretty sizable tax taxable event. And I always tell them, refer to your accountant, refer to your lawyer, take the contract to your lawyer. I'm okay with that. I don't mind at all because if most of the time they never do, <laughs> you know, yeah, the option. but right. The psychology of it is, yeah, go for it. Go talk to them because I have had one person talk to their accountant and they were like, yeah, you're going to get there's no offsetting expenses. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. sometimes the taxes, it's shocking to people and in inheritance to all of it. There's suddenly there's, wow, it's not all, you can't just do the simple math and say, oh, I'm going to sell it for this and I bought for that. There's, so there's some complexity in between when it comes to taxes. But David, anything you would do differently getting started or getting moving? Yeah, take your class sooner. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. All jokes aside, seriously, I've told you that before. A lot of the bigger gurus and consultants or whatever they call themselves now, they charge incredibly high fees for a program that is uh, fly by night. 
finding the structure, the resources that you have, and the community and the support behind you. I mean, I bought into one of those bigger programs and it's not, they're not what they, they're cut out to be. And you should really find that local resource like your program that can teach you and that really care. They're not out to just hit their numbers, make the sale, and then move on to the next city or the next state or whatever else they're doing. Yeah, it's kind of a problem in the industry lately, but good. Look, I, I, I like to put something out there that's high quality, deeply detailed, yep. and affordable because that makes a difference. I want people to be able to get started the same way I got started when I was broke and had nothing. Yep, absolutely. Just sign into your program. And take the baby steps. Uh, we've talked about it before. You don't have to spend the number of hours that some people are spending. It can be just make your offers and set your goals and you will see success. But continue to make offers because without offers, how are you going to get a deal? <laughs> right. I mean, and honestly, when I first started, I was afraid of making offers. I wonder if I make a mistake, a fear. You know, we talked about that, too. Yeah. It's OK. I mean, not every real estate contract will close. It's that simple. No matter what. I mean, it's you will never have a 100% success ratio. I don't care who you are. Something will come up. It's just part of it. Part of the business, part of real estate. Every contract will not close. That is true. But you can't be afraid of it. You just got to move ahead anyway. I really appreciate your time, Tom. I, I love you to death. I know Likewise. that you've got a Likewise. ton of good programs going on. I hope that the students are really paying attention to you because you really did change my life with like, literally you think I'm BS and you like, this is your worksheet on my desk that I, I fill out with my calls and Absolutely. you know, the, the negotiation, like I'll do anything for you because you've changed lives and you know, it's, it's huge. I love hearing that. That's awesome. Uh, Dave, Dave, <laughs> it's my pleasure. I love having great students that implement and get things done. Cause that's right. That's the, that's what I'm after. It's really, you know, some people wonder, well, why do people teach if your know, teachers aren't the best? Because there's something deeply satisfying about teaching somebody else and having them do it and improve their life from it. So I can't, awesome. couldn't agree with you more. My parents were both teachers. I would love to want, I've always told myself, I would love to teach one day when I've proven myself. Because if you can give back with your knowledge, what greater satisfaction is there than seeing other people become even more successful potentially than you are? Because, I mean, I'll be honest, these W-2 jobs just hold you down. <laughs> hold you down. How it works. David, thank you. Thanks for your candor. Thanks for your openness. Thanks for all the detail you've given. Uh, this There's a lot of awesome knowledge and detail in what we've said. I would recommend people listen to this podcast a couple of times to be able to resolve it all. Thanks for listening. Your next step is to visit gettractionpodcast.com. Happy wholesaling.